You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. to the um, uh, SESI lecture series. It is my pleasure to welcome back to Madison former SESI director Yulai Shamaloglu for his talk today on the third modernization in Kazakhstan. Uh, Shamaloglu is a professor and chair of the Department of Kazakh Language and Turkic Studies at Nazarbayev University in Astana, Kazakhstan. His main research interests include history of the Turkic languages and cultures of the Middle East and Central Eurasia, the socio-economic history of Middle East and Central Eurasia in the medieval period, the history of Turkic Islamic <coughs> civilization, and modern um, intellectual movements among the Muslim Turkic peoples of the Ottoman and Russian empires. So please join me in welcoming Professor Shamilogu. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I, I came in from San Francisco this morning on a red eye, so I may not be coherent, but hopefully uh, my slides and the material that I'll be using uh, will be enough. So for those of you who know, like uh, Alexei and uh, maybe some others, um, Things have changed uh, uh, in terms of uh, politics and culture and identity in uh, Kazakhstan <coughs> over the last year. So basically on 12 April of 2017, there was the announcement by the, pre the office of the President of the Republic of Kazakhstan and it was widely distributed uh, in the news, uh, disseminated in the newspapers as well uh, about uh, a, a new course towards the future. And the title of that new program is called Ruhani Jangru. And so just as a footnote, so Ruh, you know, is clearly from Arabic of, of like spirit. Uh, and Jangru, Jangru is new. Jangru could be a verb uh, to, to make new. Uh, it's not in the dictionary. Is it a neologism? I, I have trouble pinning it down. But basically, in, in English language discourse, they talk about it as the third modernization in Kazakhstan. And last year, after I read about this, I said to my colleagues at the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at Nazarbayev University that, wow, this is really important. And so I said, you know, we have to have this, you know, round table and big splashy event on the spiritual modernization uh, of Kazakhstan. And one of my distinguished colleagues said, what are you talking about? This, this is the third modernization. But see, if you don't know Kazakh or if you don't know these languages and you don't realize that this part of the discourse is really uh, aimed at a Kazakh language audience, you wouldn't realize that the discourse in English maybe isn't quite as obvious. So uh, I think by the time I get through this brief overview, which will be just the main points, and talking, you know, a little bit commenting on what the, the program uh, is about. I mean, you'll get a sense, I think, that this is something that is, in fact, like a cultural revolution um, in Kazakhstan. And so if uh, in April of 2017 my colleagues didn't know how to pronounce this, I think most of our colleagues now, it, you know, mellifluously uh, let it roll off their tongues because everybody who's in Kazakhstan uh, more or less knows about it. 
But it's very, very easy if you're living in the United States or in Europe to not perhaps even know that this is happening because it's not publicized quite the same way outside uh, Kazakhstan. So if you go around uh, Astana, uh, you see this symbol quite you know, uh, easily everywhere. It can be on concrete blocks with plastic cover around you know, uh, a square. Uh, you will see lit up uh, version, uh, versions of this on, uh, let me take a picture here. Lit up versions <laughs> on the sides of buildings. So we go to our favorite uh, uh, Georgian cafe, Osoba, and that building has a huge version that you see at night. Uh, you know, anywhere you go, you're going to see something like this. And so this is, you know, sort of the symbol of it. So you may not have ever seen this before except for the flyer, but now in Kazakhstan, this is ubiquitous. Uh, there's all kinds of uh, media. This is uh, like a huge media uh, a preoccupation. Like everyday newspapers may have something about it. The head of the, in the International Turkic Academy, uh, Darhan Kudurvalev, uh, who's also the editor of Egemen Kazakhstan, which is the modern successor to Kazakhstanskaya Pravda or Kazakhstan, yeah, Kazakhstanskaya Pravda, has you know a regular. Uh, TV program every Monday evening, Bolashavka Bagdar. Uh, uh, actually, my friend Timur, and this is a, a, se a former senator, uh, uh, and this is uh, Professor Konkobayev, who was uh, in his academy, and I was on that too. Uh, you know, talk about it. So this is something that is you know everywhere, and so I just want to talk about the main points, and I hope that you know just by talking about the main points, it's going to become kind of clear uh, what's going on. So here, uh, I'm just going by the points as they're expressed in the official uh, announcement that was published in uh, Akordada.kz, which is the, the site of the, the office of the president. And so some of these things don't, they're not quite perhaps uh, as clear, or they have these kind of neutral or innocuous uh, labels. Um, and so, uh, Talking about national identity, and this is very, very much about uh, national identity. And so, uh, in terms of competitiveness, um, this part of the uh, one aspect of this is the trilingual education program. So, emphasizing the fact that, uh, first of all, that Kazakh needs to be uh, mastered by the population of Kazakhstan. There's no repudiation uh, of Russian language per se, uh, officially, but certainly there's also the notion of the introduction of English as kind of like the third major language that is known in Kazakhstan. Now this has been implemented so far in certain uh, ways. So you have the niche, the Nazarbayev intellectual schools, so the, the, the intellectual schools of the first president of the Republic of Kazakhstan. And these are magnet schools. So I went to Bronx Science uh, in New York City. That's a <laughs> magnet school. Anybody else? <laughs> no? So, uh, and so in Kazakhstan now, each province has these intellectual schools. And they, maybe in Almaty, there's two of them. And they're supposed to have satellites like uh, throughout uh, the provinces uh, as well that are kind of affiliated with it. So the notion there is that uh, if you enter that school and then you complete after 11 years and they're moving to a 12-year uh, education, that 
you will have studied certain subjects such as you know Kazakh language, uh, literature, and history in Kazakh. Uh, you would be studying like Russian language and literature and maybe other subjects in Russian. And then later on, you'll be studying, let's say, math and science uh, by the time you're done in English. So this is something that's already been implemented in uh, those schools. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, you have the promotion of English language instruction in universities across Kazakhstan. Now, of course, Nazarbayev University is, an, as you all know, is an English language institution, but you talk to colleagues teaching at various other universities, and anybody who has anything more than a smattering of English uh, may be teaching their subject, be it lab science or history or some other subject, in English. So there's a real uh, effort to promote English as the third language. And so you can kind of imagine why, because instead of Kazakh versus Russian, it's going to be kind of, well, Kazakh, Russian, and English, and the role of Ru Russian is going to have a smaller uh, 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 slice of, of the pie. Um, uh, and so the, the next thing in terms of pragmatism, this isn't a part of anything uh, uh, flashy. So uh, this is more about you know, Kazakhstan needing to live uh, within uh, its means and not, being, uh, not adhering to any kind of extremist uh, ideology. But the third one is really, really important. And so the first modernization was economic. You know, after, uh, I actually tried to get some of the dates and information, but it's really not easy to find it uh, in terms of having you know, nice capsule summaries. But after the uh, uh, collapse of the USSR and the Declaration of, of Independence of Kazakhstan in December 16, uh, 1991, uh, obviously all of the successor states to the USSR had certain economic problems. And of course, uh, Russia, it, there was a single ruble zone. And then uh, Russia decided to you know, send its rubles abroad and then introduce a new ruble. And that created a huge crisis. So one of the issues was you know, kind of economic recovery and self-sufficiency and being able to uh, behave as a modern state. The next uh, modernization was political. And I'm, again, I'm not conversant with all the details of it. You know, does it correspond to one of the constitutions? Um, there have been various kinds of elements of trying to introduce um, political changes, sometimes uh, you know, strengthening the authority of the president, but now also there's talk about electing uh, pro provincial governors and so on. So it's, you know, there's various kinds of things uh, going on. But this is not economic, it's not political. This is cultural, national, and spiritual. And so this... so. The, the best way to explain it without using names is to say that I have had colleagues who, when talking about this, have burst out into tears because their complaint has been, for 25 plus years, we've been told to you know, globalize, told to learn English, and you know, it, our souls have not been nourished. But now, suddenly, this is addressed at nourishing the Kazakh soul. And this is, yeah, this is how you have to understand it, that this touches a very, very deep nerve. And so, um, so part of this is uh, preserving 
the core of national identity while allowing some of its characteristics, characteristics to change. So you have modernization and globalization, but it needs to be balanced with not losing, you know, uh, Kazakhness. And so uh, it's this is considering national traditions and customs. Uh, so this is a very essentialist view of of um, uh, of what Kazakh culture uh, is. This is one component of it. So essentialism would be like saying that all Frenchmen, you know, wear a beret and have a baguette and you know ride a bicycle under the trees. One of my students from Turkey once told me he said, "Hojan, when I first came to the to the U.S." You know, at that point in my life, I thought that in order to be Turkish, you have to have a mustache. If you don't have a mustache, you don't have to. And in the case of the Kazakhs, this is, you know, a traditional aspects of their culture, like drinking fermented mare's milk, horse, eating horse meat, uh, certain kinds of foods, uh, you know, dombra music, you know, their two-stringed instrument, uh, the kizu or felt houses that they used to live in as nomads and celebrating those aspects of the former uh, nomadic culture. And so it, it's tied to you know, knowing that and not forgetting it um, and practicing it. And so, uh, the, as President Nazarbayev writes here, so first, we must understand two unalterable rules. First, modernization is impossible without preserving national culture. Second, to move forward, a nation must leave behind the elements of the past that hinder its development. You, you can disagree with that. I mean, I, I, I can imagine having modernization without a national culture, of course. But what, what he's saying is that, that that's, we're not going to do that. And so, this is um, really uh, important, and we'll get back to that. But again, this is something that is touching the soul um, uh, of, of Kazakh nationalists. Um, the next point the within that is yeah uh, is the cult of uh, is the cult of knowledge and so this is you know when people talk about an information society saying I think this is reinforcing the notion that Kazakhstan is going to be uh, pushing for uh, uh, an information based uh, society uh, and economy. And so this is, I, I have to say that this is certainly one aspect of the, the policies of the president uh, of Kazakhstan that I've admired going back to the early 90s. You had the Bolashak program, and uh, Kadisha Dayirva was involved in setting that up, and that's where they were sending thousands, uh, hundreds and thousands of, of Kazakh students abroad to various kinds of universities uh, and so, you know, that would be, you know, if you're sending students to Stanford or Chicago or Michigan State University or Indiana University, maybe some came to Wisconsin and other places, it's not cheap, right? And these people uh, go back to Kazakhstan uh, for a certain number of years to uh, fill out, to fulfill their commitment uh, for returning to Kazakhstan that they agree to in exchange for this uh, scholarship. Uh, late people were being sent for master's programs and PhD programs as well. More recently, I think the investment in undergraduate education w was being kind of directed, redirected more towards the fellowship programs for all undergraduate students at Nazarbayev University. Nazarbayev University is opening MA programs and MS programs, so I think they're less likely using Bolashak funds and other funds to send uh, students abroad for those programs which are already offered uh, as international uh, uh, programs uh, at, at, at NU. Um, for other fields, they will send people, and now the focus seems to be shifting towards sending people abroad for PhDs, you know, UK, uh, elsewhere, in, in, not elsewhere in Europe, 
Europe, not UK, they're different. Um, uh, it's a Brexit joke, I'm sorry, I'm in a fog. <laughs> so, um, so sending people there or to North America with the hope that some of them will return to Kazakhstan universities and maybe even to Nazarbayev University to teach. So this is something that since education has been my mission all my entire life, this is something that I really uh, 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 respect. The uh, evolutionary, not revolutionary development of Kazakhstan. So this is the, the, the emphasis that you're not going to have radical changes, that radical changes such as what happened after the Bolshevik Revolution uh, led to you know, collectivization, which led to famine, uh, what things that people talk about as genocide or ecological disasters, uh, Kazakh language and culture were almost lost. So that's why uh, evolutionary development uh, is really uh, important. Um, and so the open attitude refers to being uh, a part of the world, but learning from the rest of the world and adopting the best principles. Uh, and so actually that's one of the philosophies behind the mission of uh, Nazarbayev University, collecting inter the best international experience, applying it at NU, and then sharing it with the rest of Kazakhstan. That's part of our, our uh, uh, mission. But certainly this is you know, a part of this larger program. Now the next, let's see now. So now, now we're getting to some trickier things. So we have so the step-by-step -step transition of the Kazakh language to the Latin alphabet. Of course, this is revolutionary. Um, the, so uh, in the 1920s, first there were proposals for a unified uh, a Latin alphabet, uh, the so-called Young Alif or New Alphabet which was implemented uh, for you know, most of the Turkic languages of the, the USSR. It was not a long-lived experiment because one of the holdovers or leftover ideas from the time of Imperial Russia is the notion that the unification of Turkic peoples or pan-Turkism or and also the unification of Muslim peoples is somehow threatening. You know, it's, it's like fascism or something like that. Uh, and so I, I always say that, you know, uh, when people talk about pan-Europeanism, pan-Hellenism, pan-Germanism, pan-Slavism, pan, you know, orthodoxy, uh, or the African Union, or pan-Arabism, or Zionism, we don't normally look upon that as kind of evil ideologies, but within the context of the former Russian Empire, these are seen as evil ideologies. And that, that notion was also internalized by major political figures such as Islam Karimov who insisted that, oh, I'm not a pan-Turkist and so on. So this, is, this, this, this it was kind of a problem. And so later on uh, in the 1930s or in the case of Kazakh language in 1940, it, they, the various languages adopted various unique versions of the Cyrillic alphabet. And so if you were marginally educated in one Turkic language, uh, then you, you know you wouldn't necessarily be able to read uh, another Turkic language. Whereas during the time of the Young Alif, or earlier during the time of the Arabic alphabet, as it was used for Turkic languages, people could read each other's press. I mean, a lot of the differences between the languages were masked. Now, so this is very, very problematic now. So Turkey adopted its own alphabet in the 1920s. Then later, after... Uh, after 1991, so Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan, 
and Uzbekistan also adopted uh, the Latin alphabet, and I think each one of them had to go through some revisions uh, of it. So it was sometimes done in haste, sometimes not done very, very thoughtfully. I think the first version of the Turkmen alphabet, as, as I recall from, from seeing money and things like that, uh, and reading things, were you know, actually used dollar and cent signs because somebody's typewriter had dollar and cent signs on it. And, and of course, later uh, they changed that. And so this is a problem for, for Kazakhstan because in terms of, had Kazakhstan adopted a Latin alphabet, let's say in 1993, I don't think anybody would have said very much or if Boris Yeltsin had said something, who cares, right? Um, and so if it had been closer to the Turkish version, well, that's what, uh, that's what Azerbaijan did. Uh, the Turkmen version uh, is a bit different. Some of the letters are, are the same. Some are, are wildly different. Uh, uh, Azerbaijan one is almost the same as Turkish. It has a couple of extra letters. The Uzbek one does some other things like uses... Uh, Uzbek has some other phonological issues, so I won't get into that with regard to vowel harmony, but they use CH and SH like in English. So I think that in uh, the case of Kazakhstan, uh, waiting 25 plus years made it that much more difficult to just go and adopt the Latin alphabet. First of all, it's not Boris Yeltsin, but uh, Vladimir Vladimirovich, who is in charge of, uh, of the Russian Federation. And you know, you may be skeptical that he's behind hybrid wars, uh, uh, in Ukraine or you know, uh, in, in, in uh, Georgia or other places, but I think there's definitely a notion in Kazakhstan that you don't want to taunt Russia. I think Nazarbayev has always been very, very careful about kind of balancing you know, relations, keeping balance and uh, good relations with the neighbors. And so, but it just, it's more complicated now. So if you um, adopt the Turkish version, and there are scholars who, uh, and linguists in Kazakhstan or in Turkey who talk about a common Turkic alphabet, um, uh, talking about how um, you know, all of the Turkic peoples should somehow adopt a common al alphabet and kind of organically work towards having kind of a single unified literary language, which was also something that was an effort of, of Ismail Gasprinsky in the late 19th century. Uh, and early 20th century, but of course, you know, that raises or touches upon the nerve of pan-Turkism, so some people would be afraid. So sh should uh, Kazakh adopt, let's say, a Turkish-based alphabet? Well, with the whole problem in Turkey of the opposition to Fethullah Gülen, who's a, an emigre cleric in exile in Pennsylvania, uh, Turkey has decided for various reasons of Turkish politics and supposed coup and so on, a coup attempt, that he's a terrorist, okay? And you have a lot of uh, Nazarbayev University students who've graduated from these Turkish Kazakh uh, lyceums uh, who know Turkish, but the Turkish government now says that guy, and, and, and Fethullah Gülen is like, his followers are behind these schools. And so now suddenly you have a situation where Turkey's saying, these, these people are terrorists. And so, you know, if I were the leader of Kazakhstan, I would certainly be skeptical about terrorist alphabet, you know, you, you, maybe you don't want to go there. So Turkish alphabet, so Turkish alphabet is kind of marked. Um, the uh, Turkmen alphabet is really funky. Uh, the, and uh, uh, recently with the new president of uh, Uzbekistan, 
uh, Nazarbayev and Mirziyayev have had kind of warming uh, a warming in their relations. And so, you know, you don't want to adopt the Uzbek alphabet anyway. Uzbek doesn't have vowel harmony, for those of you who know what that is. Um, but, so, okay, so what are you going to do? So, we'll see later on that some elements of the alphabet, you know, maybe are like Uzbek, some are maybe a, a riff on Turkmen, some are a riff on something else. But so, it's it, it, very, very problematic. Uh, so, uh, we'll see what kind of problems there are later. Please, okay, come back. Um, and so the argument, the argument, one of the arguments is historical, saying that, oh, the Turkic languages were written in a runic alphabet, and then later Uyghur alphabet in, like, Mongolian, and then later uh, in an Arabic script, and then you had Latin script, and it's only then, in 1940, that Kazakh adopted the Cyrillic. So what's the big deal? So, um, so basically he's saying, by 2025, we need to, to switch. And so right now, they're in the process of changing. Actually, as we speak, they're organizing courses for teachers of teachers. So they're, they're organizing courses. And I'll actually participate in one of them about you know, teaching the alphabet, the new orthographic rules, which have not been decided yet, uh, and the final alphabet, which may not be final yet. <laughs> so uh, there's, you know, there's all this kind of stuff going on. And so... You know, this is this is this is going to happen. Another thing that they're doing is uh, this is the, I wouldn't be talking about that particular word, but they're calling it the new humanitarian knowledge. One hundred new textbooks in the Kazakh language in social and human sciences. Now, I should say that I'm very proud that the, the Nazarbayev University exp experiment does include a school of humanities uh, and social sciences. And I think that's really, really important for Kazakhstan and for Eurasia, for the former Soviet space. Um, in my understanding, uh, when NU was first set up, there was a lot of skepticism about the social sciences and the humanities. What's with that? Why, why do we want that? This is uh, supposed to be a STEM, uh, a STEM school. But I think the fact that they decided that you need to take the, like, the best 100 textbooks from around the world uh, and on, on humanities and social sciences and translate into Kazakh, in a way, is a, is, is, is a victory for international liberal arts education, first of all. Uh, second, it's not taking stuff from the United States and Canada exclusively. One of the first uh, books is translated from Russian, but predominantly they're going to be from English, though not uh, exclusively. And so this is, I think, uh, books that are, going, that are being translated already. 18 have been translated into Kazakh. For, this is for use at, in Kazakhstan universities, Kazakhstani universities. Now, there's a few small interesting facts about this. At first, when this was announced, I thought 100 best books in academe. And so I started to organize a list and so on, and that was never finalized. But it turned out they really were thinking about um, textbooks. And so, of course, you can raise questions about, OK, what does it mean when you have textbooks that you're translating using terminology that you don't have in your language necessarily? So one of the big issues right now that we have is the Terminological Commission is trying to figure out what the hell they're going to do uh, about how to translate some of these. Uh, the people who are translating don't necessarily understand uh, uh, what the textbook says because they may be translators, but they're not specialists in religious studies or linguistics or certain other uh, fields. Um, so this is a moment where there's the 
we're, we're seeing also the creation of a lot of new uh, terminology uh, uh, in, in, in Kazakh. Um, and so what does it mean if you have textbooks that are going to be taught by people who may not understand or agree with it fully because they were trained like in the Soviet model and so on? You know, it's not clear. But, but, but as you can tell, this is a really, really interesting, uh, this is a really interesting moment in terms of the globalization of higher education in, um, in, in Kazakhstan. Now, this is really remarkable. There's the, the third point about patriotism. So trying to instill patriotism and love for one's country uh, in, uh, uh, among uh, Kazakhs. So patriotism begins with love for one's land, for one's village, city, region, with love for a small homeland. I, I'm not quite sure about the concept of the small, like the, your local, you know, the, the bigger country plus your own local uh, place of birth. And so this is the Turanjer program, so which means you know, the place of your birth, your homeland. Um, and so... Uh, so, so you know, basically, you're talking about instilling patriotism, a love of your uh, of your homeland, you know, territorial nationalism. So you could say that. Um, so in Soviet times, you know, maybe you, you you know nationalism was considered to be kind of wrong and evil, and I think that this idea was very deeply embedded among you know various peoples and various leaders but uh, now at this moment in time uh, Nazarbayev is trying to kind of use this and kind of ratchet this up and so uh, just a, a, a couple of personal reflections uh, clearly you know earlier economics you know was really important and then the political restructuring of Kazakhstan and I think uh, Nazarbayev who I think is about uh, 78 years old. Um, some people are wondering if he'll retire when he step down when he's 80. He'll still have certain rights um, as the first president. But so I think um, he's now facing his legacy. He's thinking about how people will remember him not in five years but in 50 years or 100 years. So I think it's like, am I going to be like Ataturk for Turkey? Forgetting the fact that Erdogan is trying to undo all that, that's a different issue. So I think uh, he's fighting for the Kazakh language, which has not been doing as well as it should, and he's trying to you know, develop nationalism, which used to be a bad word, uh, and trying to turn it into you know, a, a more significant force and feeling than was the case before. And this doesn't come in a vacuum because in the parliament you do have nationalists who have been critical uh, of the government for not promoting Kazakhness enough. There are people who are concerned that Nazarbayev University is this privileged, expensive experiment in English. How come you know, the students don't know Kazakh well enough? Uh, and so on. But... Uh, but so this is, this is very significant. And so a part of this or related to this is the sacred geography of Kazakhstan. So not just the notion, so the thing, not the building that is important or a tree because of, of shamanism uh, and so on, but rather which are those spots which are of spiritual value to the Kazakh people? And so I'll give just one example. Uh, my wife Funda and I were recently at a conference in Aktau in Western Kazakhstan, and there was a tour of the Mangashlak Peninsula as a part of it. And they have 362 um, holy sites there where 
holy men from the past have been have you know are buried, and so you have like 362 shrines, and there may be uh, other um, things uh, of of spiritual value too, and so you have projects where in each province they're trying to catalog. Uh, all of the, the sacred uh, spaces or all of the places of spiritual value and so on because what they're trying to do is try to create you know, a, or, or build up the, the spiritual content of the geography. You're talking about the territorial nation you're also, which has a specific territory which you're supposed to love and it's also having this kind of you know, religious uh, uh, connotation uh, attached to it too. So that's also uh, very, very important. And so one of the highlights is uh, Turkestan, which is near Shimkent, uh, which is the city where um, the mausoleum of Ahmed Yassavi is. And actually, until I visited, I hadn't understood that uh, so many Kazakhans are buried there, too. I was shocked to learn that. I thought I knew something. Um, but so, and so the role of Turkestan is also going to be, um, is also going to be um, uh, kind of... Uh, featured more prominently, Mo- most recently, uh, Turkestan became was assigned the role of the new uh, capital for that province. In fact, instead of uh, Shimkent uh, and so on, and so basically, with regard to these kinds of points, you know, there's going to the, the the president is saying they need to educate the the, the people about uh, the role of these sacred places. Uh, within you know this zone, the mass media should pay attention to it, attention to it, and there should be domestic and international tourism uh, connected to these sites too. So I think I can easily imagine that Mangashlak uh, and Akta will become kind of a hub for one kind of spiritual tourism. Uh, certainly, Turkestan can develop I- in that way uh, too. Now, uh, the modern two more points and then a little bit on the alphabet and that will be enough for today, I think. So in terms of modern Kazakh culture in the global world, this is really, I don't, I don't know if you want to say it's overreach or what, but so they, the Kazakh government wants to make Kazakh culture or I, I, if I would say masterpieces of Kazakh culture, that would maybe be more appropriate, but they want Kazakh culture to become better known in a variety of languages including the six languages of the United Nations. So English, Russian, Chinese, Spanish, Arabic, and French. So in Soviet times, uh, a lot of translation activity took place. I remember that I bought some of my first Chinggis Aydmatov in Arabic in Damascus, I mean, because they were advertising, you know, the the Muslim writers of the Soviet uh, Union. And so Kazakhstan is doing something parallel to that. And so this is, of course, something that is intended to raise the prestige of Kazakh culture uh, internationally. And so um, that's, that's you know, something significant. The other thing is the 100 new faces of Kazakhstan. You're not going to feel that here, but as you're, if you're taking the shuttle bus to NU from where I live, the, pro- the project where I live, the, 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 um, uh, the various construction sites are screened off by these temporary walls and plastered across, across these are like these hundred new faces. Uh, so these are uh, people under, I'm not sure if they're all under 30 or 40, um, but these are people who are successful. And so I think rather than having uh, the old heroes left over from Soviet times, it's like these, these new faces, people who are successful internationally, be it in the arts or in molecular biology or in teaching 
or in business or in some other uh, in some other way. Um, I should say that so just as this is kind of decoupling uh, the notion of Kazakh identity away from uh, Russian and Soviet identity, the terminology issue too is connected to that. Uh, people who are on the inside in these terminological commissions do talk about how basically the government's intention is to um, reduce the role of Russian influence on the Kazakh language through the Latinization project. So I just I, maybe five minutes and then I'll be happy to answer questions if I don't faint first. Um, the, the, um, this is not going to be large enough, but I'll show you some large samples. So this is the third version of the Latin alphabet. Um, I'm praying that there's going to be a fourth and maybe a fifth version. The first version, which I think was like a trial balloon, was uh, proposing to use digraphs, so combinations of two letters to write various things. So if you have like a, uh, a front A, so A, uh, you know, write it A-E like in, you, you would in, in German, or like Goethe, O-E. So you, there was the notion that you should write, you know, A-E-O-E-U-E for everyone in, instead of an umlaut. Now, uh, I understand their concern about not wanting to use German letters because, after all, Germany is not very successful economically and they don't want to do, be like that, right? <laughs> so, so, uh, so, so... So the, the, so the first geniuses promoted, decided they should do uh, the diagram. Then they decided that uh, you should have an apostrophe. And so A should be A followed by an apostrophe. Uh, e should be O followed by an apostrophe. And U should be U followed by an apostrophe. And so that, that has special other problems that I think people liked the apostrophe more than, uh, than the digraphs like Goethe. Um, but the, then it, that creates a whole new set of problems. Like if you're using Microsoft Word, you know, uh, it's, you're going to get all kinds of autocorrect. Uh, you won't be able to code the language. Um, it, it's going to introduce huge amount of new problems unless you have like a, a, a single, you know, letter, Unicode letter for A apostrophe. That, that could work, but they, they didn't want to do it. Then um, the, the next version, which is the current version, which I hope will change, has so A indicated uh, A with a, long, with a long accent. In Hungarian, that's a long vowel. Um, uh, G, R is going to be G with this uh, on it. Only one of my uh, fonts has that letter. Um, they want to remove the distinction between H and H, which is a problem. Um, they have a dotted and an undotted I, but it's used in a totally different way than in Turkish. And the uppercase ones are both dotless. So, you know, I don't know what's up with that. The Z is going to be written with the J according to this one. N with an a, a, a apostrophe, which I would pronounce N, because uh, that's usually what linguists would do for panelization. They're going to use that for ung. O with the apostrophe is going to be U. Now, so the Kazako is going to be written U. Uh, this is U. Now, why with an apostrophe is going to be like the Russian U. Russian U is used in some funky ways in Kazakh, like for as the W in Wakut, let's say at the beginning, like so like for uh, as a diphthong. Some people say it's not, but so Baru Kelu. So for, for that uh, and uh, the problem there is like it's based upon a Y. In Turkmen, that's going to be a Y. 
And so you have sh and ch like in English. So you can see this is kind of like tipping the hat, like riffing on Uzbek. Uh, Uzbek has some stuff like this, but Uzbek doesn't have vowel harmony. So it's, 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 it's kind of problematic. Now, so what this has is it's going to, it's going to, play, it's going to play the sound, I hope. Okay, so my argument is that when the Institute of Linguistics had a meeting about it, I, I, I couldn't go to that meeting, I was invited, but I sent greetings and I said, please do something that will raise the prestige of the Kazakh language. And I'm really sad to say that I think what they've done is they've come up with something, A, that uh, uh, perpetuates the oddities or peculiarities, sometimes absurdities, of the Kazakh Cyrillic alphabet. It's using the Latin script in a way that's really, really unusual. And I think that most Europeans looking at this would not be able to pronounce this correctly. And that's my biggest, my biggest concern. So, okay, so I hope you can see it. But so, you know, they start talking afterwards about, you know, having the Huris and going into heaven and so on. But okay, so I just want to go until here. So hopefully... So, so this is always, and uh, the, 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 the dauntless eye is used as if it was an ikratkaya. It's, it's, it's a bit of a nightmare. So this is from egemen.kz, that is the, uh, that is the, so Darhan is the editor of this, this is the former uh, Kazakhstanskaya Pravda. Uh, and so if you want to see examples of it, you know, it has it in uh, the Latin, and some, many other newspapers do by now too, so not just in Cyrillic. So you can compare the two if you want. And so here's, um, I just thought I would show you another one that, so this would be some example. So Kazakhstan then is a Singapore, Singapore Dung. So Singapore U, and this is the Kazakh Sauda. It looks like it's Saida or something like that. So it's, it's, it's really counterintuitive. Um, and so, A, so why am I showing this? Again, this is a part of the adoption of the Kazakh Latin alphabet, and the Kazakh Latin alphabet, adopting it, is a part of this whole new, new program. So how should I sum up? Uh, so basically, this is you know, revolutionary for Kazakhstan in terms of culture. Just even for any country, changing an alphabet is a huge deal. But it's not just about changing the alphabet. It's about changing like, the spiritual content of, uh, of Kazakh identity, making people proud to be Kazakhs, uh, teaching them about the relationship to the territory, territorializing their identity, uh, instilling it with this kind of spiritual meaning, and so on. And so, and I, I personally, I don't know what Alexei might say or somebody else might say, but I, I really feel that this is, you know, uh, uh, Nazarbayev's legacy moment. So that if I don't do this, and 25 years from now, 50 years from now, people are, you know, speaking only Russian, they don't care about their identity, uh, and so on, that, you know, he will not be the father of his nation. And I think it's really about him uh, making his last uh, attempt to really become 
deeply embedded and 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 uh, as the, the 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 father of the Kazakh nation and securing his legacy. So I'll be happy to answer your questions if you have any. So thank you very much.